A tumultuous back and forth in Congress over infrastructure and the election of a socialist in the Democratic primary for mayor of Buffalo, New York, shine new light on the fierce struggle of the rising people's movement and the establishment elite. We'll also cover injustices in the prison system, the sentencing of convicted murderer Derek Chauvin, and U.S. airstrikes attacking Iraq and Syria. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's June 29th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum, Walter Smolarek, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly every single Friday. Brian, let's get started. There's a lot of big stories today. I want to first off pay our tribute to our friend Mike Ravel. He was senator from Alaska between 1969 and 1981. Mike Ravel was the member of the Senate who dared to read into the congressional record the Pentagon Papers when there was an injunction against the New York Times and the Washington Post for publishing the Pentagon Papers. Of course, we were thrilled to have Daniel Ellsberg, the greatest or most well-known whistleblower perhaps in the United States, here as a special guest on the 50th anniversary of the release of the Pentagon Papers. But Mike Gravel was part of that milieu of people from within the political establishment. He was a senator. Ellsberg was a top official in the Pentagon. But they were moved by the anti-war movement, moved by the civil rights movement, moved by the criminality of the U.S. war in Vietnam. And they worked together to try to end that war. So a sad day for politics in the United States. Mike Gravel died June 26th. He was born in 1930. We have a very exciting show coming up this week. Of course, today is in the news. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking again with Richard Wolff about basic Marxist economic categories and definitions and concepts. On Thursday, we're joined by renowned scholar and educator and author Gerald Horn. We're going to be talking with Dr. Horn about Juneteenth, of course, made into by law an act of Congress and signed into law by Joe Biden a federal holiday. That's June 19th. We'll talk about what June 19th really means. We'll also talk about another holiday, July 4th, and the genesis of the independence movement of the 13 colonies in what became the United States, leading to the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776. And there's another anniversary this week, which is July 1st, Thursday, And we talked with Gerald Horn about that too, which is the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Communist Party of China. So we're going to continue our discussion with 
Gerald Horn about some of the the ironies of history, uh, not only marking the trajectory of politics inside of China, but the politics between the United States and China, and put it into the context of the current new Cold War directed against the People's Republic of China. Before we get started with our first story, which we're going to go over the news about the Biden infrastructure plan and the different twists and turns of this story. But before we do that, I also want to just have a big shout out and congratulations to India Walton. India Walton is a lifelong Buffalo resident. She's a worker. She's a nurse. She's a socialist. She's African-American political leader in this community in Buffalo, the second largest city in New York State. A lot of attention was paid to what was going on in the primary in New York City, the Democratic primary. But India Walton won the Democratic primary in Buffalo, New York. And that means in all likelihood, she will be the mayor of Buffalo come the general election. People might not know it, but the socialist movement, which is reviving now and has been reviving in the United States for the last few years, has a very long history, a very robust history, and has played a major role in American politics. And again, this history has been essentially eviscerated, extinguished, not talked about, not taught in the schools. But here we have a mayor about to become mayor of Buffalo, a socialist, People might not know, but a hundred years ago, at various times between 1910 and 1916, socialists controlled the municipal governments in Schenectady, New York, Reading, Pennsylvania, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Dayton and Toledo, Ohio, Granite City, Illinois, Butte, Montana, Berkeley, California, and many other cities. The largest state chapter of the 100,000-strong Socialist Party under the leadership of Eugene Debs was in Oklahoma. Debs, the Socialist Party candidate for president, was sentenced to 10 years at hard labor at age 65 for giving a speech opposing the U.S. entrance into the war. He ran his presidential campaign from his prison cell, and he won nearly a million votes. That's in 1920. Socialists were a powerful influence in the labor movement. At least one-third of the delegates of the 1911 AFL convention were socialists by conviction or party membership, and socialists exerted a dominant influence in four of the largest affiliates of the American Federation of Labor. Outside of the AFL, the mass membership Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America promoted socialism openly among its members. And even members of the syndicalist International Workers of the World, the Wobblies, who expressed antipathy to conventional politics could be counted on to vote socialist when and where they were eligible to do so. I'm bringing this up because this is the socialist program. We bring it to you three times a week. We are part of the revival of socialism. We are part of the movement for social justice. And again, it's been a terrible crime that this history of socialism in the United States has been essentially extinguished or eviscerated during the anti-communist Cold War starting in 1945. Some of the most influential people from or living in the United States were socialists. 
You will know their names, but you might not know that they were socialists. Among them were Martin Luther King Jr., Coretta Scott King, Paul Robeson, Albert Einstein, Helen Keller, Charlie Chaplin, A. Philip Randolph, Eugene Debs, who I mentioned earlier, W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, Emma Goldman, John Reed, Mother Jones, Huey P. Newton, Kwame Ture, Bayard Rustin, to name just a few. So what we're doing here with our program, the Socialist Program, is not simply providing a socialist perspective, but we are part of the socialist revival, which the working class, the poor, the climate, society, the world desperately need. Walter, let's get started with some of the big news. And of course, the socialist voice on this news, the question of infrastructure and some of the other legislation offered by the Biden administration will be extremely important, but it's important also for people to know the trajectory of this legislation, the twists and turns, and the efforts, it seems, by the Biden White House to either botch the reforms or capitulate on them. Anyway, let's talk about it. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Well, we saw a number of dramatic reversals happen in the negotiations between Congress and the White House over the passage of a new infrastructure bill, a bill that would involve about $600 billion of new spending on infrastructure. So for you know a couple of months now, the White House has been locked in negotiations with a group of so-called moderate Republicans, quote unquote, centrist Republicans. And it appears that finally they had reached a deal. They announced that the Biden administration was very proud of it. They saw this as an example of their success reaching bipartisan unity among different elite factions. But then the very next day, Biden made a serious blunder. And at a press conference, he said that he would not sign this new infrastructure bill this deal that they had just arranged, he would not sign that into law unless Congress also passed a more sweeping set of reforms called the American Families Plan that he had proposed a couple months ago. So essentially conditioning the success of this deal that they had just made on the passage of something that all of those quote unquote moderate Republicans were completely opposed to. And so That was a shock to actually everybody involved, both the supporters of the compromise and the members of the the more liberal members of the Democratic Party who are opposed to it because it was insufficient. It didn't go far enough, especially with regards to investments related to climate change. Walter, let me jump in real quick. And Esther, I want to get you to comment on this too. So here we have it. So the media is all like lit up. Biden finally succeeded, bipartisan deal. He has a press conference. He's going to crow about his success. But behind the scenes, the liberals are saying, like, that's not enough. You're making a deal with the Republicans and you're selling out the progressive part of the thing. He goes off script. He says, but I won't actually sign it. And then the Republicans say, okay, to hell with you, no deal. And by Sunday, Biden says, oh, no, I I will sign it. I will sign it. Esther, I mean, it's classic Joe Biden sort of incompetence. Well, it's not only super bad timing for Biden, but it's also 
creating more frustration for people in the climate movement because this fight over this infrastructure is happening, you know, as the whole country is watching the aftermath of this like horrific, you know, partial collapse of a condominium complex in Florida, in the Miami area. And I should mention that that collapse happened last week also when this pedestrian bridge fell on a major highway on I-295 here in the D.C. area. That could have been deadly. You know, five people were hurt. And though it is private property, the condominium in Florida collapse could have everything to do with public building infrastructure and standards. You know, how and if these standards were properly regulated in this freewheeling 1980s when these buildings were constructed, when, you know, deregulation was touted by the federal government, you know, by the right, I should say, when President Reagan declared that government is the problem. And, you know, these things have added only frustration to people on the left, people who are trying to get this infrastructure to be more than a gift to big corporations, developers, large mega corporations. And since the collapse, it's been reported that an engineer told this condo association three years ago that there was major structural damage at the complex. But apparently the condo association was just starting on these repairs three years later. There were also studies that this particular area, Surfside in Southern Florida, which scientists have already told us is going to basically disappear, you know, with sea level rise, that this area is sinking, you know, and climate change induced hurricanes and storms are battering this coastal area all the time, you know, more so now. And, you know, residents report that additional construction of these high rises are shaking their buildings. So, you know, in addition to infrastructure that's being talked about, climate change as a factor and the greed of, you know, the real estate development that is happening not only in Miami, but in our area here in D.C., but all over. So I just want everybody to know that there are these major demonstrations happening in Washington this week around the climate. And these are the young climate activists not all young, I shouldn't be ages in any way, but climate activists who are coming here and who are demonstrating today on Monday, there was a sunrise movement in front of the White House on Tuesday. Today, there'll be people, a lot of the kind of what they call big green climate activists talking about urging the Biden administration to stop all subsidies to fossil fuel companies. You know, it's amazing that in this area where we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about climate change, that we are still subsidizing big oil companies. And so they want a stoppage of these types of subsidies to be put into this infrastructure bill. And then on Wednesday, another big group, coalition is coming together to, you know, risk arrest and talk about the things that they want in this infrastructure bill, not just money for developers and these big corporations to build bridges, which is definitely needed, but they want this human infrastructure part that is being bandied about right now. They want it made whole. They want childcare. They want elder care. They want wages raised for people who are taking care of the elderly. They want a climate core. I think 
more than a million jobs of people who will basically go out to do work in the environment to stave off the worst effects of climate change. And that could be things that would help areas like Surfside, Florida, where you've had several governors now just not even admit that climate change is real. And so all these things are coming in at the same time, this horrific tragedy in Florida, the climate change that is buffeting the Pacific Northwest. You have Seattle on this past weekend. You have highs hit triple digits in Portland, Oregon. In Seattle, highs reached 101 degrees. And normally this time of year, Washington, Oregon, see average highs in the 70s. So you have people from Florida to the West Coast and activists all over the country converging here to say that, you know, this is really our red line. If we can't get the changes we need in this bill, many people just believe that this is like our last chance because we're already seeing these catastrophic impacts of climate change. Walter, let's go back to you. It seems to me Biden has failed on two grounds here. One, he failed to properly manage the even, you know, weak compromise that he did with the Republicans. He was being buffeted by liberals who said this isn't enough. He's also failing because it's not enough. I mean, the infrastructure program that the Republicans are agreeing to is essentially, tell me if I'm wrong, is essentially a subsidy for big technology corporations so that they can become, quote, more efficient in the fight against China. But it seems to me that this infrastructure bill is largely not about saving the environment, providing jobs. It's a subsidy for capitalist companies, including the biggest ones. Well, Brian, the agreement is in principle so far. The actual text of the legislation has not yet been written. And if that process plays out, there would, of course, be lots of wrangling and struggle and debate and maneuvering around what exactly gets included. But if we look at past experience, if we look at the past statements of politicians and plans that have been formulated, I think there's good reason to think that that is correct. And essentially, it's framed as a way to inject additional money into the economy to stimulate business. But, you know, it's the same old story we hear all the time from politicians. This isn't about growing the economy for the working class. It's not about reducing inequality. It's about taking public money, government funds, and giving it to private corporations. You know, maybe there'll be some bridges and roads constructed as a consequence of this, but even those will be geared primarily towards commerce and making private business more efficient. And if there's any public used to them, then it's essentially just an accidental knock-on effect. So yeah, I mean, the total dollar amount, like Esther was saying, is like insultingly low. And right, I mean, what it's actually doing is not that great. It's essentially lining the pockets of big business and would sort of take the political wind out of the sails of any movement, you know, real legislative motion uh, towards passing the things that people do desperately need. Let's turn to another story. The Washington Post headline, a grandmother didn't answer her phone during a class. She was sent back to prison. This is a story about Gwen Levy, 76 years old, living at home with her mom recently, who's 94. Anyway, this is America, only in America. Right. Only in America would a 76-year-old be in prison anyway, but she's one of thousands of people who were approved to serve the rest of their sentences at home from the federal 
prison system because of the coronavirus, because the prison system is so has so many staffing issues, health issues. It's just a place where the coronavirus has blossomed. And so they tried to get as many people out as they could, of course, leaving lots of people in who are not being treated. And Gwen Levy is one of the people who was able to leave. She had a more than 30 year sentence for a drug offense that she got reduced from Donald Trump's First Step Act back when he was the president. And now she was able to spend the last few years of her sentence at home, like you said, reconnecting with her family. She had kids, grandkids who she was able to reconnect with. And she was in class at this time. In June, she was in a computer word processing class, a 76-year-old in Baltimore. And the officials who were supervising her were alerted by her ankle monitor at 10.51 a.m. that she was not home. She didn't answer calls to her phone for a few hours. And by 1.17 p.m., the report noted, essentially, based on the ankle monitor, that she had escaped. It was called a quote-unquote escape. Again, I just want to say that was from 10.51 a.m. to 1.17 p.m., where she was found to not be at home. And they called that an escape. Her lawyer says, quote, there's no question she was in class, as I was told, because she could have been robbing a bank. They're going to treat her as if she was robbing a bank, unquote. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. She's doing the exact thing that you're supposed to do if you are in prison and you leave prison. She was 76 years old learning how to work computers, learning how to, you know, try to get a job, which she had already started volunteering and was already getting back in her community. So, They're sending Gwen back. They're not only sending Gwen back, but there's other thousands of people who were approved for release. And I want to be so clear here. They were approved for release to spend the rest of their time at home. They were never going back. That wasn't part of the deal. The deal was coronavirus is hitting. We're in a pandemic. These are people who clearly don't need to be in prison anyway. These are, quote unquote, nonviolent offenders, although a lot of people who are you know, deemed violent offenders I think people will be surprised what that means in American prisons. But regardless, these are people, mostly drug crimes. So they were told you can go home to spend the rest of your prison sentence at home. And again, I also want to be clear that that's not even a walk in the park. To literally leave your house, even to travel 20 yards to take out the trash, if you're at home serving your time, you have to get on your phone, you have to figure out how to use a smartphone, and you have to submit a request in an app to a contractor working for the government to leave your house for even 20 yards. I mean, this is very serious. And yet thousands of people are being sent back to federal prison. And the reason they're being sent back is there was a Justice Department decision at the very end of the Trump administration. They said, oh, yeah, all those people we let out, we're going to send them back if their sentences extend beyond the pandemic. So get ready. As soon as the eviction moratorium, as soon as the emergency mandate is done, we're going to send all these people back. And President Biden has not said a word about this, has not said anything about changing any of this. And the Bureau of Prisons is already making plans to bring everyone back to prison. People who have gotten jobs, people who have, you know, rented apartments and are providing for their families in some cases. Anyway, I'm going on too long just because there's so much here that is so disgusting. But Brian, I think you're exactly right that it's really, truly only in America would Gwen Levy A 76-year-old, four years less to serve. She has degenerative joint disease, hypertension, cataracts. She's in remission from lung cancer. She's got great grandkids out on the outside. Only in America would Gwen Levy be sent back to prison. Yeah, and right now she's in a D.C. holding facility about to be transferred back to federal prison. Again, this is federal prisons, federal government, Joe Biden. Gwen Levy's going back. By the way, 2.4 million people in the United States are in prison. 2.4 million, that's 
one out of every four prisoners in the world who come from a country that has 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners are in the United States. How many of them are like Gwen Levy, older people? How many of them are, quote, seniors? Well, that would be 10%. The official statistics are that 10% of the prison population is over the age of 55. That means the United States is holding 240 or 250,000 older people in prison, and a lot of them because they had drug crimes or crimes of survival. And how many of them are rich? That would be zero. The rich can commit any number of crimes. Corporations can commit any number of crimes. Jeff Bezos, by the way, it wasn't criminal apparently for him not to pay any income taxes and to get the $4,000 child tax credit, which he did in 2009. No, this is a war. The criminal justice system is a war against the poor. It's against the working class. It's disproportionately against Black and Latino communities. Gwen Levy should be free. I really feel we need to do something about her case and the case of other people who are unjustly incarcerated. 76 years old, back to prison because she was at a word processing program in Baltimore where she was learning how to use a computer. And Brian, I just want to briefly add that this specific instance, not just Gwen Levy, but that whole category of people who were released... You know, we were talking about Joe Biden's power earlier and his strategy and what he's thinking and what he's, you know, what he's saying, what he's doing. This is something that he could do unilaterally, that he could, his Justice Department could just write up a quick memo and rescind the Trump administration's memo. I mean, Joe Biden ran on we're rescinding everything Trump ever did. And this one is incredibly easy to do. I mean, it would take no political capital. All it is, one single sheet of paper. Great. All the people who were released a year ago they're not going back because they don't need to be back in prison. I mean, that's all it would take. Gwen Levy's sentence was longer than Derek Chauvin's. Esther, Derek Chauvin was sentenced. Right. And I just think that whether we're talking about his conviction or that sentence of 22 and a half years, it's still a people's victory, you know, because remember, he was not even going to be charged, right? So I really understood, you know, watching the sentencing, especially having covered, you know, restorative justice and issues around abolition, that there's really no sentence that can amount to justice for George Floyd's family, his extended family, or I would say the millions or billions of us who were traumatized by witnessing Chauvin's cruel, just torture of strangulation and suffocation of George Floyd under Derek Chauvin's knee. And I don't even like to say people say he kneeled on George Floyd's neck. It sounds too like calm. He dug his knee into George Floyd and tortured him for more than nine minutes. So this lack of justice is not just because no prison sentence will bring George Floyd back to his brothers and his daughter Gianna, but also because the sentence keeps with this one bad apple narrative that the media likes to keep talking about and that lawmakers like to talk about. And it doesn't admit the systemic nature of police terror, the particular history of Minneapolis police violence against the Black community. So there's accountability for Chauvin who, again, was not even going to be charged until the people in Minnesota and then around the country and then around the world rose up. But there's no larger truth and accountability, truth and reconciliation about the ongoing murders or the scores of police-involved murders, lynchings, 
false imprisonments that never made the headlines. And remember, after Floyd's death, Minnesota police put out a press release that said of the incident, quote, officers were able to put the suspect into handcuffs and notice he appeared to be in medical distress. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center, where he died a short time later, end quote. And that's how the incident would have been not remembered. And Chauvin would not have been even charged. And just a couple more things. There were a few moments in the sentencings where I thought, despite the heart-wrenching interview with Floyd's seven-year-old daughter, Gianna, and from his brothers, that Chauvin's attorney and Chauvin's mother, I, I think, tried to introduce this element of white grievance to the judge. You know, this idea that Chauvin was, quote-unquote, a good man who was being wrongly railroaded into prison for just doing his job. And a few things happened during the sentencing that I think they're important to understand in terms of this attitude on the part of some whites, not all because all the white people on the jury voted to convict Derek Chauvin, but it is important when we're looking at instances like the fascist attack on the Capitol on January 6th, the lawmakers not being able to pass the George Floyd Policing Act and not you know, wanting to proceed with any kind of commission for January 6th. So all these issues are connected to me. And the sentencing of Derek Chauvin is still a people's victory, but it's showing the shortcomings of the system. Indeed, indeed. It wouldn't have happened without the struggle. You know, when I posted something from someone on Facebook who said it was only the people's struggle that made this happen, and then somebody else posted and said, but so what? you know, like the system hasn't been changed. The system is still the system. It's still doing the same thing that it did on May 25th. It's doing it today, you know, in 2021. And that's true. That's true. But if we don't recognize that the victories that are won are won as a consequence of struggle, then we lose the most important part of the narrative, which is we can win if we struggle. And the fact that we haven't won the final victory doesn't negate that truth, that only through struggle do we win anything. The idea that there's a Civil Rights Act or Medicare or the Voting Rights Act or Social Security or unemployment insurance, women's right to vote, which only happened in 1920, all of that was the consequence of people's struggle. And we are, again, to go back to where we were in the beginning, we are looking for reforms, but we're also looking for a new system. We are for socialism. We believe there can be a reorganization of society so that it's rational, that it makes rational choices, that it's fair, that it's just, that all individuals start life with an equal opportunity. All of that is within reach. But again, even if you are for a complete revamping of the system, as we are, we have to realize that only happens from struggle. Nobody's going to deliver that as a Christmas present sometime. Let's go on to another story before we get to our headlines from Liberation News newsletter. Joe Biden, like Donald Trump, like Barack Obama, like George W. Bush, like Bill Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is continuing the tradition of bombing people in the Middle East without warning killing civilians again, and it's treated by the U.S. mainstream corporate media, the imperialist media, with sort of a ho-hum attitude. 
Here's this article. U.S. targets Iran-backed militias in Iraq, Syria strikes. Okay, again, when the U.S. bombs Syria and Iraq, they're not, you know, the idea that they're hitting Iran-backed militias, those are Iraqi people and Syrians who have been the leadership in the fight against ISIS and in the fight against Al-Qaeda. That's who is dying in Iraq and Syria. When the U.S. attacks and bombs Iraq and Syria, and it's like a ho-hum reaction from the media, we just urge everyone to put the shoe on the other foot. What if Syria decided to bomb a U.S. city and say, you know, we were striking at forces that have been involved in violent attacks against our people, meaning they were just striking U.S. military installations or civilians who support the U.S. military? I mean, would it be okay? Would it be okay for Syria to bomb the United States? Would it be okay for the Iraqi government to order the bombing of the United States? I mean, just to ask the question answers it. Syrian state media said about these recent bombing, without providing evidence, the U.S. strikes hit residential buildings near the border. This is the border between Syria and Iraq around 1 a.m. local time, killing one child and wounding three residents. And again, it's ho-hum. I mean, this is a violation of international law. It's a violation of the UN Charter. The U.S. continues to occupy Syria. It continues to occupy Iraq. Remember when the Iraqi parliament voted unanimously, demanding that all U.S. forces leave their country? That was after Donald Trump assassinated with a drone General Soleimani, when he came to Baghdad airport to be involved in peace negotiations, regional peace negotiations with the Iraqi government, and the atrocity that was committed by the U.S. at Baghdad airport, the Iraqi parliament unanimously said, leave our country. Well, that was, you know, January 2020. The American forces are not only still there, they're still bombing and killing Iraqis and Syrians. Again, Trump is gone, but U.S. imperialism and the arrogant sort of assertion by the politicians that America has the right to carry out these kind of military strikes against people all over the world, that hasn't changed one bit. We started the show celebrating the life of former Senator Mike Gravel. And actually, we have a clip of him at the 2008 presidential debate when he actually takes the Democrats to task, including Biden, for being so trigger happy and ready to bomb other countries. Some of these people frighten me. They frighten me. When, when you have mainline candidates that turn around and say that there's nothing off the table with respect to Iran, that's code for using nukes, nuclear devices. I got to tell you, I'm president of the United States. There will be no preemptive wars with nuclear devices. To my mind, it's immoral, and it's been immoral for the last 50 years as part of American foreign policy. Let's use a little moderator discretion here. Senator Gravel, that's a weighty charge. Who on this stage exactly tonight uh, uh, worries you uh, so much? Well, I would say the top-tier ones. Top tier ones. They made statements. Oh, Joe, I'll include you too. You have a certain arrogance. You wanna, you wanna tell the Iraqis how to run their country. I gotta tell you, we should just play get out. Just play get out. It's their country. They're asking us to leave, and we insist on staying there. And why not get out? 
What harm is it going to do? Oh, the, you hear the statement, well, my God, the soldiers will have died in vain. The entire deaths of Vietnam died in vain. And they're dying in vain right this very second. And you know what's worse than a soldier dying in vain? is more soldiers dying in vain. That's what's worse. So that was Mike Gravel speaking truth to power 2008. You can see why the mainstream media obituaries are so nasty to him. Let's turn to our last stories. It's Liberation News, an important socialist website. Walter, you are the editor. What are the big stories in your newsletter this week? Yeah, that's right. So liberationnews.org, you can sign up for the newsletter. You'll find the button right at the top center. One that I want to highlight this week, it's titled Voting Rights Bill Blocked, How It Could Have Been Different. There is a very important piece of legislation up for a crucial vote in the Senate to protect voting rights, to defeat some of these racist anti-worker attacks on voting rights. But that failed. This article explains why the Democratic Party could have passed this without relying on any Republican support whatsoever if they were willing to do what it takes and sacrifice ruling class, quote unquote, bipartisanship. So check out that article, Voting Rights Bill Blocked, How It Could Have Been Different. There was a very important vote at the United Nations to condemn the cruel, unjust U.S. blockade of Cuba. Almost every single country in the world voted in favor of a resolution condemning the U.S. blockade that seeks to cut Cuba off from trading with the rest of the world. Only the United States and Israel voted against it. This article titled The World Stands with Cuba Against U.S. Economic War has all the details, including how the blockade affects Cuba. And then finally, there is an on-the-ground report from organizers in New Hampshire. The article is titled, 100 Protesters Occupy State House Demand Budget Veto, about how people are mobilizing, taking determined action to prevent a whole range of reactionary measures from being passed by the state government in New Hampshire. So you can find all that and more at liberationnews.org, updated daily. Well, that's it for today's show. Join us tomorrow with Richard Wolf and on Thursday with Professor Gerald Horn. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.